Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I'm here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. We have a lot to talk about today. Yep. Lots of politics today. Are you just going to pretend it's not Friday the 13th? Well. And we're not quaking in fear? But in Greece, the unlucky day is Tuesday the 13th. Oh, really? Uh Uh-huh. Why? I don't know. It's never been really explained to me. It's just and then they they get confused as to why we get so wrapped around the axle on on Friday the 13th. I said, it's the unlucky day. Whoa, what's unlucky about that? It's Tuesday that's unlucky. I'm like, all right, whatever. I don't know. I don't understand it. <clears throat> but anyway, we're going to talk about Medicaid, Medicare. We're going to talk about politics. We're going to talk about the environment. What else are we going to talk about today? We have news of the weird today. Yeah, we do. Which is always fun. Yeah, yeah. We are going to talk about why the Biden administration is expanding these uh, privatization programs that the Trump administration launched against the wishes of the progressive wing of the party. We are going to talk about uh, what has recently been revealed about the short term plans of major fossil fuel companies. Yeah. And honestly, just. I'm just whistling past the graveyard. I don't mm-hmm. know. It's just, it is mm-hmm. remarkable. The and also that the the biggest offenders in terms of having the most extraction plans and the plans that will result in the biggest carbon emissions are uh, the United States, Canada, yeah. and Australia. Absolutely true. Which is also you know. So we'll get into the politics of climate change as well. What does it mean when the people who are pretending to be leaders on this topic are also the biggest offenders? Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, it's almost like you could apply this to other areas of life Imagine. as well, like foreign policy. And, yeah, yeah, like foreign policy. Yeah. Uh, in other news, before we get to those stories, we're gonna we have a couple of headlines. Uh, Eleven people died last night, and thirty-one people were rescued. When a migrant boat capsized near Puerto Rico, this is the third uh, capsizing of a migrant boat or ship uh, since the beginning of the year between Puerto Rico and Florida or Haiti and Florida. Um, Most of the intending immigrants were thought to be Haitians and Dominicans. The ones that were rescued were taken to a hospital for exposure. The water's still cold. Yeah. This time of the year. Yeah. Um, So. That was that that was a terrible incident. It mm-hmm. could have been worse, but it was still terrible. Eleven eleven dead and thirty one yeah. rescued. North Korea yesterday reported its first COVID death, but today state media said that six more people had died in what they're calling an explosive outbreak of the disease. And this is a word that the North Korean media used: an explosive outbreak of the disease. North Korea is not participating in international vaccination programs. And nobody in the country that we know of, at least, has received a COVID vaccine unless they got one in China and then returned to North Korea. The government also said yesterday, and I don't understand this, but they said that since April, 350,000 people have been diagnosed with fever. That's the only word that they're using. Out of those 350,000 people, 162,200 have recovered. Now, they don't explain if that means the remainder have died of fever or simply still have a fever a month later. But when I read this and I I read it from the official North Korean, you know, Twitter site, um, I thought it was alarming. Yeah, that doesn't sound I mean, who knows? I have no idea. Right. But but a recovery rate 
a month later of yeah. only about half yeah. or less than half less of the people half. who are infected doesn't sound like COVID no. unless it is just, you know, unless everyone who's gotten it is extremely vulnerable and has no protections. And then, may, but it still doesn't sound like, I mean, that's not, if COVID had that death rate, the world would be in chaos, I feel well, like, or um, that, or that like death plus, you know, ongoing yeah. incapacitation rate. And Associated Press right? said, well, that that's exactly what, okay. what the AP reporter was thinking. And he was saying that, and, and of course, this is typical of, of a Western media outlet, but uh, it could be that they're run down, they're hungry, they don't have access to uh, appropriate yeah, medical maybe. care. You know, all different kinds of things. Maybe. But I mean, even before we had vaccines, I, I don't know that the. It was never that. High. I don't think so. No. But never, who knows? So who never. knows? Uh, maybe. Who knows? Tell uh, us speaking, about. Uh, well, I have. There's other COVID news that I heard that uh, I was surprised I didn't see elsewhere. I mean, maybe that's because it's sort of confusing. But Joe Biden announced that the U.S. is going to share some COVID technologies through the WHO COVID-19 tech access pool. So he announced today that the U.S. is going to share uh, the health technology that is owned by the U.S. government, which includes stabilized spike protein, which is used in a lot of covid vaccines. As far as I can tell, it is not clear if this is going to include some of the stuff that is patented by Pfizer and Moderna, which has been this, you know, fight about fight about the intellectual property uh, of these patents and others for, you know, basically since the vaccines were developed. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it is pretty a pretty late date to start sharing some of this stuff, I would say honestly. So. Yeah. Um, and so, I, you know, slow claps, mm-hmm. but uh, to, it's May 2022. You know, we've had vaccines for more than a year, right? Yeah, well over a year. Yeah, I got mine in April of last year. Year and a half, maybe. Um, so it, it's pretty outrageous and also pretty obvious that this is going to be partial. Although, again, the U.S. Mm-hmm. government has been fighting with, I believe, Moderna over who exactly developed a pivotal um, a, a pivotal piece of technology that went on to because the, these their scientists uh, and researchers from this private organization were working together with researchers and scientists from the NIH, I believe, when the discovery was made. And so there's been a fight in court over a particular aspect of the development of these vaccines from Moderna saying, no, 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 you don't. Ha- we did it ourselves. Like Shame while you were that. out of the room, we figured this thing out yeah. when you came back you in. Know, we had Jonas done it. Salk didn't patent the uh, the vaccine for polio yep. and the the inventors of synthetic insulin didn't patent insulin just so that it would be available for nothing or next to nothing for everybody. Yeah. And look at the situation we all find ourselves it in now. Shame on all of them. It is grotesque. And we are going to talk more about what for-profit healthcare does to people mm-hmm. in the United States a little later in the show. But no, the, we wanted to talk about... Um, an update in the case of WNBA star Brittany Griner, yes. who has been detained in Russia since March, I believe she was picked up. She had a hearing in which her her detention was extended another 30 days. This is according right. to a source who spoke to ESPN today. Uh, I, I'm also told, well, ESPN is also told that uh, authorities denied Griner's request for house arrest. So she is still in some kind of detention facility. She, of course, was picked up at an airport after customs said she was in possession of vape cartridges containing hashish oil. And honestly, I this has got to be personal use level stuff. I don't imagine Brittany Griner is carrying a, a, a case of no, hash. this is a political issue. To, to, wasn't she coming to the U.S. also? 
Yeah. You know, bring it back to cell news. Anyway, right. it's It's outrageous. It's outrageous that anyone is getting arrested for uh, yes, you know, personal amounts of marijuana. And, you know, it, it had been a topic of conversation that there was so little attention being paid mm-hmm. to her case. And we talked about this on the show and concluded that it must be deliberate, right? Her, fi- her family had not been saying a whole lot. They hadn't been right. making a bunch of public statements. They hadn't been calling for people to start a, you know, hashtag free, free Britney G or anything mm-hmm. like that. Um, and so we concluded that that must be their desire. Well, now... And, and this was. is uh, back in April, the State Department said that Griner's detainment was a top priority. But earlier this month, there seems to have been a significant change when the State Department reclassified her case as one where someone has been wrongfully detained and is basically being held as a political hostage. Mm-hmm. And so that means her case comes away from the consular office, which really couldn't do a lot more than speak to her and make sure that she wasn't being mistreated. Mm -hmm. And now a a State Department spokesperson told the SPN, uh, the Department of State has determined that Russia has wrongfully detained Brittany Griner. And now the special presidential envoy for hostage affairs is going to lead the team for securing her release. So according to Dave Zirin, who was writing in The Nation, this means that uh, the idea that talking about Brittany Griner could do some harm to her case gets sort of put to bed. And right. now, you know, Griner could be eligible for a prisoner swap. The WNBA can be freed to publicly advocate for her. And, you know, as he was saying, to shame other sports bodies that don't. And so it is possible this case is about to get a lot more public. Although, again, this this switch occurred last week. And I haven't seen a ton more attention paid to her case now. No, nobody's writing about it. If it is, if now it is not, you know, perceived to be, uh, you know, a a detriment to an outcome in this case, then I think people should be talking about it because it is terrible. Yes, it is. It is terrible. And how long does she have to wait for some kind of trial over this? I mean, look, it's dumb to bring, (laughs) dumb to try and bring drugs through an airport. Yeah, sure. But the consequences for it. Uh, I think are are outrageous at this point. I agree. And Russia doesn't get a pass for having backwards, cruel drug laws. Yeah. I agree with that. <laughs> the other story that I saw this morning. Wow. The New York Times. Now, I don't know if this is like, if they're having funsies pretending this is great. But the New York Times uh, had a piece yesterday talking about how Kamala Harris is emerging as the voice of abortion rights in the Biden administration and telling us the threat to Roe versus Wade presents Vice President Kamala Harris with an opportunity to recover from early political stumbles. Lots and it's an ill wind that blows nobody good, John. Uh. But also, I mean, on one hand, this is offensive to me because it is a case of of talking about how, you know, a, a real consequential political problem is okay because it's going to benefit not they're not actually saying it's okay but that it's going to benefit this politician but sorry this is a stinker this is yeah, another stinker for is. kamala harris like immigration uh That's like it started voting rights uh-huh. yeah sorry the, like uh, they just tried to vote on the uh they tried to pass the women's health protection act it didn't pass it they can't do anything uh-uh. And so no, this is right. her, this is what her great comeback is going to be. Not being able to do anything is outrageous. I am surprised <laughs> that the Times would even suggest that a silver lining to much of the country probably losing the right to an abortion is that Kamala Harris can maybe improve her political chances. And it's even worse because she was never popular to begin with. 
So it's not like the great people's candidate, Kamala Harris, had her campaign unfairly derailed yeah, and, somehow, and now here's her comeback. She right. is no, no, she notably never even made unpopular. It to the, she never even made it to the primaries. No. You remember, she dropped out before the Iowa caucus. Yes. Because she was polling under 2%. Yeah. Yeah. And also, her campaign was in havoc, her staff was in yes. havoc, which has apparently continued. Yes, she, the it's still in New havoc. York Times is also absolutely overheating over Kamala Harris telling an Emily's List fundraiser, how dare they? <laughs> in talking about the leaked Supreme Court, Supreme Court decision. And I remember, John, and we did not. Talk, I was like, no, this is too stupid to talk about. I'll just note it as stupid. But like there were headlines at the time saying, like, she, she put that line in herself. Isn't it great? <laughs> I mean, I, please, people, oh, I, I implore you, do boy. not be so easily pleased. And also, she's talking to Emily's list. Yes. You know what I mean? It doesn't get any friendlier than that. Yeah, exactly. Take it to a choir that's not already singing that tune. Uh, But they're saying Harris might have finally seized on an issue that's popular among key Democratic voters, plays to her strengths and is central to the future of her party. I mean, you know, it's also popular among voters is uh, Medicare for all, Mm -hmm. single payer health care, marijuana legalization. So that obviously doesn't matter. And I don't know that it's playing to her strengths necessarily other than, you know, she's she's been more of a. A defender of abortion rights than Joe Biden has been for much of her career. Yeah. But, you know, when you talk about the, the Women's Health Protection Act, the Times says this is an insight, their insight into how this is going to make Harris look good. On Wednesday, she presided over the Senate as Republicans blocked a Democratic attempt to write Rose abortion protection into law. How's that good? To sit by looking like it's a loser not, and yep. not to mention shot in the foot by your own party member. Yes. They do not know what a portrayal of strength actually is. It is bizarre. So, I mean, yeah, she's got abortion now. <laughs> she had immigration. She had voting rights. I don't know how many millstones you could put around somebody's yeah, they're, neck. They're flailing around is what it is. Yeah. It's just comic to me. Okay, here's here's Kamala Harris's big comeback, being able to achieve. I mean, I don't want to be a total naysayer, but like being able to achieve probably nothing on abortion rights, but talk a lot about it. If this is victory, you don't know how to do politics. I will say I also had a there was a uh, story about Madison Cawthorn in Politico yeah. that also ticked me off. But it turned out to be it was better than this weird New York Times story about yeah. how abortion abortion I, I restrictions you. are, you know, it, yeah, it, it was started well off, researched. Yeah. And it did get into, you know, the, the political uh wool that he pulled over his voters' eyes. Oh, yeah. Right? In addition That's to exactly like, what oh, happened. it's about how Madison Cawthorn is obviously having a sort of mental and emotional meltdown as a congressman. And I was really prepared for a story that's like, oh, poor Madison. He had this terrible accident and then mm-hmm. being a congressman was too hard for him. And I was going to say, look, think think of the constituents, will you? Uh, but actually, they did that. So yeah, I'm going to give Poli- Polico, you win, you win this hand. I actually... Came out of that article. It was quite long. Mm-hmm. Well researched. I actually came out of it feeling a little more sorry for him than I have in the past. But with that said, um, his car accident, as awful as it was, doesn't doesn't explain his crippling immaturity. Wow. That was a poor choice of words. <laughs> sorry. Oh, shoot. <laughs> That was also a poor choice of words. I didn't mean that. <laughs> I'm teasing you. I'm sure you didn't. I'm I didn't sure you mean didn't. that. I no, didn't even realize I, I said it until you pointed it out. I feel absolutely. He's so immature that he just can't get beyond his own youthful 
lust for power. Mm-hmm. And he, he, it's like he's he's intellectually unable to be consistent on issues. I feel bad for Madison Cawthorn for the accident that happened to him. But he also raised more than $3 million, yeah. maybe a lot more. 3.2 million was the last figure spent I could see. more than he's raised. Spent a ton of it to become yeah. a representative. So like when you, when you work really hard to get this level of responsibility, I think you are then responsible for, yes. for what happens. Yes. And so there's he's, a- He's stepped on, on a lot of people yep. uh, in, in the, in the show short time that he's been involved in politics he's offended a lot of people that he should have been cultivating and um this is not you know it might not even be survivable for him yeah. politically i want to talk about this more i know we have our first guest on the line uh, we obviously at some point are going to talk about elon musk putting on hold and then right. taking off hold his twitter acquisition but also if you uh, We'll talk more about this later, I hope. But if you want to see something that will make you cry, you can watch video footage of the funeral procession of murdered Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akleh, whose funeral procession was disrupted by Israeli law enforcement who beat the pallbearers so badly they almost dropped her coffin on the ground. Just like the the indignity that Palestinians are made to suffer. She's Greek Orthodox. She was Greek Orthodox. They went inside the church. To beat the pallbearers. It is an it is an outrage. It's hard to it know is. what else to it's say an about outrage. it. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break here and fi- find more words for our next segment. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. <laughs> and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. The 2022 Pulitzer Prizes were announced last week, and not surprisingly, the New York Times won for national and for international reporting. In the international reporting category, the Times won for what the Pulitzer Committee called, quote, courageous and relentless reporting that exposed the vast civilian toll of U.S.-led airstrikes challenging official accounts of American military engagements in Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan, unquote. That's very laudable, of course. But how long should it take for the media to tell us about civilian casualties during war? There were civilian casualties from the very first day of the war in Afghanistan, beginning in October of 2001. Why did it take 21 years to talk about that in depth? In other news, natural gas prices jumped in Europe today after Russia unveiled unveiled sanctions on energy companies operating on the continent. The sanctions will make it more difficult for European countries to buy Russian oil and gas on the gray market, something that had already been set in motion. The international community has placed even more sanctions on President Putin's family and friends. And a war crimes trial will begin in Ukraine for three Russian soldiers accused of rape and murder. We'll follow that as it develops. Finally, the president of the United Arab Emirates, 73-year-old Sheikh Khalifa bin Zayed al-Nahyan, died this morning. He had been in ill health for some time. The country's presidency will be assumed by his brother, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed. We're joined by Aaron Good. Aaron's a political scientist and host of the American Exception podcast on Patreon. His doctoral dissertation has been published by Skyhorse under the title American Exception, Empire and the Deep State. Welcome, Aaron. 
Hi, John. Great to be here with you. So glad to have you back, Aaron. I, I guess the first question that I have for you is a straightforward one. Why did it take so long for there to be any comprehensive reporting on civilian casualties, especially after we've had a string of whistleblowers like Lisa Ling, Sean Westmoreland, Daniel Hale, all coming forward to tell us about uh, the military killing hundreds, maybe even thousands of, of innocent people? Why did it take so long? Well, this has been an ongoing issue since the 9-11 wars began. As you pointed out, there were casualties very early on of civilians uh, with the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan and then subsequently Iraq. And there was the 2004 Lancet study, which Mm -hmm. eventually even uh, like the cabinet ministers in the U.K., uh, and maybe even Tony Blair had to admit was based on best practices. And it revealed that it, as of 2004, uh, if my memory is correct, that there had been 600,000 deaths caused by the Iraq war. And of course, the majority of those are going to be civilians. Right. Um, and the and but the U.S. side has always sort of lowballed these. Um, and and I, I think that they likely are still lowballing all of these things. I would guess that the time story is only kind of a, a limited hangout. And that's kind of the business that they're in, because they're, it, it would be one thing if the Times would eventually get the story right uh, but as a rule. Right. But like when you look at the history of these wars, there's so much reporting that they get left out. So here we have a partial admission of the civilian casualties, which is, you know, better than having nothing at all, I suppose. But you don't we don't hear about how the Afghan, the, the Taliban before we invaded, set, offered to hand over bin Laden for a trial uh, if, to avert a war or uh, that you know the even the extent of uh, the for the Iraq war, we know that that these that the war was fabricated, that it was illegal by international law by the UN charter, which the U, we US has ratified, and thus it's also a violation of US domestic law for the Iraq war to have been launched. But as with these other cases and with these casualties in general, uh, of, of civilians, there's never accountability for the U.S. national security state. So the empire operates uh, in a realm of legal exception. And uh, when they reveal things like this, I mean, you want to say it's good that perhaps these things are getting talked about. But on the other hand, it also seems to be part of creating an illusion that there's kind of you know democracy, accountability, and a free press. Uh, in our society when I, I don't think those things really exist. So, um, you know, this is just probably the tip of the iceberg as far as uh, all the crimes of the last uh, 20 years. But um, at, at least, you know, some people may be talking about it more. So that's a positive thing, I suppose. Well, that's that's kind of my next question to you uh, is uh, what do you think the effect will be of investigative pieces like what we saw in The New York Times? Do you think that it will make people talk about it more or talk about it enough that policymakers take note uh, the the Pentagon for its part? adamantly denies that large numbers of civilians are killed. I actually I actually went to the Pentagon website to see um, the the numbers of civilians that they say have been killed. And it's like one hundred and eighty eight. Seriously. Do you think then that these kinds of investigative pieces, think pieces will help Americans understand what it is that their government is doing in their name, the crimes that are being committed in their name? 
No, I think that by now it's pretty well established that Americans do are not very worried about the civilian populations of other countries. And even if they were, the stranglehold of the uh, military-industrial complex, but also just the, the larger empire of corporate power that it serves, uh, they're really insulated from these, these consequences. So I, I don't – I think that the – What's going to deprive this imperial venture of the United States that we've really been on since the end of World War II, what's going to deprive it of steam and momentum is the rise of countervailing forces and uh, institutions that will short circuit uh, the U.S. systems of control and domination, um, like the control over the dollar, like control over geographic space in Eurasia, which... Uh, Russia and China pose a direct threat to. And I, I think that looking at that area, that area of the world, Eastern Europe, the Balkans, uh, Central Asia, and the Middle East, if you look at how the U.S. has tried to get in there in the 21st century with 9-11 as kind of a pretext for it, but mm -hmm. also the Arab Spring Wars sure. and now this business in Ukraine, it can all be seen as part of this Cold War that never ended. Yeah. Uh, where the fall of the collapse of the Soviet Union really resulted in uh, aggressive U.S. inroads into the Balkans, Central Asia, uh, the Middle East, sometimes are often with al-Qaeda as the kind of pretext for uh, dovetailing energy policy with counterterrorism policy. Right. Uh, but now we're – but with, with this business in Ukraine and now with, with China, we're seeing what it was really about. And Brzezinski wrote that himself in like 97 or 98 in the Grand Chessboard. He wrote that the main objective of the U.S. is to control uh, Eurasia and not let any coalition of powers co uh, be able to uh, counteract, counteract um, U.S. hegemony there. And he said specifically, we, we have to prevent the barbarians from coming together, which really meant China. He said he used the term barbarians, uh, but it, uh, it was China, Russia and these other former Soviet uh, socialist republics or countries in the Soviet sphere of influence. Uh, that, that they wanted to keep them weak and keep them from coming together and keep them on the American side as much as possible. And this is coming undone uh, before our eyes. And um, it's, it's, it's messy. It's a little frightening. But uh, it, there's once other institutions emerge and other power blocks emerge that can actually uh, more effectively counter the U.S., which we're already seeing, like the U.S. failure to overthrow the Syrian government, for example, and probably what's going to happen in Ukraine, which is not going to be a Ukrainian victory, I don't think. Uh, these are these are things where these are times where things are changing, and uh, it's going to be interesting to see what what comes about and what opportunities there are for uh, people to work towards creating a better world after this. Aaron, we've mentioned on the show a couple of times that even though most European Union countries have stopped buying Russian uh, gas and oil directly, uh, they're still buying gas and oil on the gray market or on the secondary market, knowing that it originated in Russia. Um, now it's the Russians cutting them off. What do you think the result will be? Europe can likely get through uh, the summer with, you know, expensive gas for their cars. But what happens when the weather gets cold again and they need uh, heating oil again and they they can't buy enough oil or enough gas rather from Qatar or Egypt or, you know, the United States? Then what do they do? 
Yeah, they seem to be really getting the worst of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Europe, Europe is, and I—it's it, hard to say because I think that events in in the in Ukraine will be wrapped up uh, way before it gets cold again. I don't think that Russia is going to attempt to uh, occupy all of Ukraine. So the fighting will be done. The question is what kind of peace settlement and economic arrangements are going to be laid out. Uh, In the New York Times recently, I mean, I I, I don't love the New York Times, quite the opposite, really. But there have been a couple of pieces where where reality is sort of setting in, even if it's couched in ridiculous terms, like this one article from a Council on Foreign Relations guy where he – the first half of the article is him saying that the U.S. Uh, in Ukraine was guided by this ideological commitment to promoting democracy and it's so on and so forth. It was really – it's absurd. And this this Council on Foreign Relations is extremely anti-democratic with a lowercase d. They are, high, they are Wall Street, Wall Street's think tank. They're the, the world as Wall Street would like you to see it. And so it's ridiculous that he was saying all of these things. And that he would be someone who would care about democracy, ruled by you know the public, the demos, right? Like that's the opposite of what corporate America wants. They want a, a tiny elite controlling everything. But in the later in the article, he goes on to to say that you know you have to sort of respect what the, what great powers who are nuclear armed, uh, how they perceive reality, and that that the U.S. needs to accommodate this and avoid nuclear war. So the various ways where reality is starting to creep into the propaganda um, it is encouraging. And then perhaps by the time winter rolls around, there will be some sort of accommodation. And another reason that I think that this is possible is that the U.S., by wrecking Europe, by, by keeping it away from Russian gas, is back, could have real problems for the U.S. It could be – it could result in – a, a breakdown of the U.S.-European alliance because people will be angry at the U.S. for w- when it's more widely perceived that they're responsible for this indirectly, and, or or more or less directly, and uh, it also has um, it, it can lead to other institutions being created around the world, like more non-dollar denominated trade in in oil and other commodities and ways of settling. Uh, international payments that get around the dollar, they're just speeding this up. And so perhaps people will realize in their enlightened self-interest, the U.S. ought to have some way of backing down from this because it could have consequences that'll be damaging that be damaging to the U.S. You know, just as an aside, I have to tell a, a short anecdote. When I was stationed, it, it was my last tour uh, when I was uh, at the CIA, I was stationed at the United Nations in New York. And my now ex-wife uh, was my wife at the time. She was the intelligence fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. And she came home one day and she said, hey, we're invited to dinner with Hank Greenberg, the CEO of um, AIG, right? One of the biggest companies in America at the time. And it was in his townhouse on Park Avenue, this five-story Townhouse had to be a $50 million house. I was kind of excited. It was only like eight of us that were invited to this dinner at Hank Greenberg's house. So we went and it was totally first class the whole way and talked about foreign policy all night long. And then on the way out, I was thanking him for his hospitality. And I said, Mr. Greenberg, do you mind if I ask you, why did you invite us to this dinner? 
And he smiled and he said, because every rich banker in New York wishes he was secretary of state. And that's really what it came down to. These guys love the Council on Foreign Relations. You said, Aaron, that the Council on Foreign Relations is essentially Wall Street's think tank. That is exactly what it is. That's exactly what it was set up to be. And so they take donations by all these rich guys. Every room in the, in the CFR headquarters is named after some rich Wall Street banker. Um, they have chairs and fellowships that are named after these rich Wall Street bankers. And they commission uh, uh, papers, uh, think pieces, studies on different aspects of, of uh, foreign policy. And then the State Department actually adopts those policies because this is supposed to be, you know, a serious uh, foreign policy think tank. And so what you end up having is a lot of rich Wall Street bankers who are de facto secretaries of state. That's really what it comes down to. You know, the fix is in from the beginning. It's pretty sad, actually. Thanks for letting me vent that. <laughs> okay. My next question for you, Aaron. The British instituted sanctions today, and this is the oddest story. They instituted sanctions today on President Putin's um, alleged girlfriend, her grandmother, Putin's cousin, and Putin's ex-wife. This comes a week after the U.S. specifically decided not to sanction these people so as not to make an already bad situation worse. Boris Johnson, and we've been saying this for weeks now, Boris Johnson seems to want to take the lead in this fight, uh, this fight of sanctions on Russia. What's his endgame there? Why, why is he seeking leadership on sanctions of all things? I, it's it's a you're right to point out that it's a strange thing that they would be running out ahead of the the U.S. when typically Britain often seems like America's yeah, lap dog or, exactly. or junior thug buddy in whatever sort of imperial you know atrocity we want to commit. We can always count on the support of the Brits. It's also notable that it was Boris Johnson who, according to Ukrainian sources. Uh, came to Kiev and spoke yeah. to uh, Zelensky and told, and Zelensky was interested in actually trying to negotiate some sort of settlement with Russia. And Boris Johnson told him not to. Which Crazy. You would guess that Bor that Zelensky would assume that that was also the word of the U.S. if he was saying that. So, why they would be running ahead of this? Perhaps there is some kind of schism here, and that uh, you're, the the British are even more alarmed about Russia than uh, the U.S. If that's possible, or the U.S. might be kind of divided on it, whereas the British establishment might be more united. I mean, the whole the whole geopolitics of the even really the 20th century as well. I mean, the the guy that runs Stratfor, uh, yeah. I think his name was uh, Friedman, Friedman or Frieden or something like that, or Freed. I can't remember. But the guy who founded Stratfor, the, the private yes. intelligence firm, he said that the, the main goal of U.S. Uh, of Anglo-American foreign policy for the last hundred years, over which two world wars was fought, was to make sure that Germany and Russia were not united because united there, they would act as a as a counter to with you had German industry and then Russian manpower and raw materials that they were actually allied, that that would be uh, a counter to first the British Empire control over uh, the world, but then after World War II, the U.S. kind of takes up that project, and so it would be a counter to uh, the sort of Atlanticist power block mm -hmm. 
uh, in which the, the British were a junior partner. So perhaps it is some sort of, you know, McKinder, Halford McKinder-esque thinking about uh, geopolitics that's fueling this, because uh, as you suggest, it's, it's a strange, it's a strange paradox. You don't expect the junior uh, partner, the obviously junior and weaker partner right. in this alliance to be uh, running out ahead uh, in all, on such a, a crucial issue. So um, it's, it's puzzling. I wanted to ask you also about this war crimes trial. Three Russian soldiers are being accused of committing really terrible crimes, um, rape, murder uh, of, of civilians. And the Russians have accused Ukrainian soldiers of similar crimes. Are these going to be legitimate trials, do you think? Are, are they going to be propaganda um, actions? And, and do you think that the prospect of trials might reduce incidents of war crimes that we're seeing on both sides? What I mean is... Do you think that soldiers will think twice before committing these these horrific offenses, knowing that there's a possibility that if they get caught, they go on trial for real? Well, they're being tried by the opposite side. Yeah. And so it, it even to be captured, if you're a Russian, would require a lot of bad luck. And you would probably assume the worst uh, is possible, considering that some of these uh Ukrainian forces are like literal Nazis right. with a, a genocidal ideology. Um, you know, I'm sure in every war there's atrocities. I'm sure the Russians have committed atrocities and the Ukrainians have committed atrocities in this war. That's that's and that inevitably happens. Uh, and yet, so there, it, it could be. It doesn't have to be either or. It could be that there are crimes that are going to be committed and perhaps these trials will get to address some of them, but then they will no doubt be used for propaganda purposes because from best that I can tell, the propaganda game of the Ukrainians uh, as backed by the U.S. and its massive mili- you know, uh, mass media apparatus is pretty strong. On the ground, things are not so strong, which it, you'd rather have a good propaganda apparatus, I suppose. However, when things on the ground start to become undeniable anymore, then all the propaganda doesn't really matter. So, you know, what will what will they do to try to achieve justice here, or will it just be exchanges of of prisoners rather than these kind of things afterwards? Good question. I mean, you you kind of hope that this can be resolved as quickly as possible, and and with a a, a settlement that uh, will allow for some kind of stability and. That the, however the maps are redrawn, that the people living in the borders will be mostly as uh, as safe and secure and happy with that as possible. So how they how the hand, war crimes are tra- are handled, I think that it's I'm hoping that they don't just that neither side executes people because I'm against the death penalty. Hopefully they'll come to some way of settling this after the fact with exchanges and something like that. I mean. I just I don't I don't see how these things will be perceived as legitimate by the other side, no matter what. And so uh, maybe there'll be a better way of dealing with this in the long run, even if they do convict them. And I mean, it's better for war crimes to be punished. But uh, how do you the whole these are criminal things to begin with. I mean, the coup in 2014 was criminal. It's hard to see that the invasion isn't a violation of international law on some level as well. Uh, Whether you so it's a it's a it's a conundrum. Okay, we'll leave it there. That was the voice of Aaron Good. He's a political scientist and host of the American Exception podcast on Patreon. 
His doctoral dissertation has been published by Skyhorse under the title American Exception, Empire and the Deep State. I read the advanced copy and it was terrific, by the way. Thanks for joining us, Aaron. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a very short break and come right back. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with my co-host, John Kiriakou, and we are going to have a conversation about some of the findings of an investigation into what fossil fuel companies are planning for our near future. The Guardian this week had a story about its investigation into the industry's plans. And would you be shocked to learn they aren't contracting or spending money launching new cleaner energy projects, but instead they're launching new oil and gas extraction projects. According to this report, the industry's short-term expansion plans involve starting oil and gas projects that will produce greenhouse gases equivalent to a decade of carbon dioxide emissions from China, which is currently the world's biggest polluter. 195 of these are huge projects that would each result in at least a billion tons of carbon dioxide emissions over their lifetimes, totaling about 18 years of current global emissions. About 60% of these have already started pumping. The dozen biggest oil companies are on track to spend $103 million a day for the rest of the decade exploiting new fields that can't be burned if global heating is to be limited to well under two degrees Celsius. And the countries with the biggest expansion plans and the most of these billion ton carbon bombs are the U.S., Canada and Australia. We're going to talk about what this means with Tina Landis. She's an environmental and social activist and the author of the book Climate Solutions Beyond Capitalism. Thanks for joining us, Tina. Thanks for having me. I wonder if if this at all contradicts the impression that some of these companies were giving? Have, have they even been pretending that they were going to cease uh, expansion and exploration, or should we not be surprised at all? Yeah, we shouldn't be surprised. I mean, the UN's been putting out these emission gaps reports for the last few years, and it showed that, you know, planned and existing fossil fuel production has us on track for three degrees Celsius warming, which would be catastrophic. Um, and The top 20 economies um, in the world have invested more in fossil fuels just since 2020 than in renewables. So it's, it's like a, they're just continuing on with business as usual. And you can, you can look at what Biden, President Biden has done. It's like right before the UN climate summit in November, he met with OPEC nations and encouraged them to drill more and produce more oil and mm-hmm. came back to the U.S. And right after that held the largest oil and gas lease auction in U.S. history. Mm-hmm. You know, every these capitalist governments are not doing really changing their business model and aren't stop, you know, changing the production plans at all. In fact, they're expanding. 
I want to ask also about these governments in particular, because nations really like to point the finger at each other as the biggest polluters and the worst offenders. And China and Russia are often portrayed as really recalcitrant when it comes to climate action. While the U.S. and Canada, I'm not going to pretend that we don't pretend to be angels, but we do have this sort of like, oh, we're concerned, but pragmatic and we're doing things in a sort of slow, deliberate fashion. So what does it say if the biggest global players when it comes to climate change and uh, talks about, well, I guess when it comes to fossil fuel extraction and when it comes to, you know, talking about climate change are talking out of both sides of their mouths. Yeah. I mean, first you have to look at the global climate actions that countries are taking within the lens of colonial underdevelopment and China and Russia are not on the same development level as the U.S., Canada, Australia, other imperialist colonialists. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, despite what the U.S. media says about China, they're actually leading the way in renewable energy production. They have three times the gigawatt power in renewables than the U.S. and are you know, producing nearly, they have nearly, um, as of 2020, had produced nearly half a million electric buses that are operating in China and also had major, major reductions of particulate, particulate matter pollution in Beijing and other cities is directly related to having government control over industry, right? Where in the West, we don't have that. Um, And you also can't, you know, you can't look at climate emissions reductions without looking at imperialism and the U.S. war machine, which is actually, the, the Pentagon has emissions equal to 140 countries combined. You know, so you can't, and also the, all the divisive policies that really hold back sustainable development around the globe that, you know, is imposed by the U.S. and other imperialist countries. So, you know, it's like, it's not, a, when the U.S. talks about emissions reductions, it's really disingenuous because it's until you dismantle the U.S. war machine, you can't really address U.S. emissions in any real way because the, the Pentagon is the largest consumer of fossil fuels on the planet by far. Mm-hmm. And also, would you see we've seen the Biden administration react with sort of panic to things like rising uh, gas prices and, you know, a potential, you know, it's it's a crisis of cost, right? Not necessarily of supply, but they've been pressuring OPEC to pump more, uh, changing restrictions on how much ethanol can be added to gasoline during summer months. So just immediately, as soon as there is a sort of short term financial and political crisis, any concern for climate change goes immediately out the window, which I think demonstrates how, you know, how seriously they take this issue. The The question then has to be, I think, can can there be a coordinated action without the U.S., Canada and Australia? You know, if if we keep hosting these big events where we're supposed to be talking about the, you know, serious solutions to climate change. And it turns out, you know, some of the biggest players and of course, you know, the the U.S. is a big basically, you know, the the U.S. to to some degree controls the U.N. Uh, How meaningful can it be with their participation? And would it make sense to just, you know, start start trying to do things on a global level without these big three players? Yeah, I mean, that is happening to some degree already. But um, but like I said, the you know, the U.S. in particular and Europe are, you know, the largest per capita polluters on the planet. China's only 10 per capita. Um, and the cumulative emissions of, of the imperialist countries is much, much, much higher than the rest of the world. So until the countries that are most responsible and have the resources and technology and the wealth to make these shifts really need to take the lead. And, but unfortunately, you know, they're doing the opposite. 
um, which speaks to <laughs> the people in these countries, the, the masses of people in the U.S. pressuring the government to actually take action, because that's the only way it's going to happen. Yeah. I also want to ask, since you mentioned, you know, sort of the, the wealth and the expertise, what do you what do you think should be a role for these giant fossil fuel companies in uh, addressing climate change? You know, because I have seen I think it was uh, oh, John Stewart uh, had a sort of infamous segment on his new program where he had a bunch of guests on to talk about how we, we need these energy companies, actually, and we shouldn't be mean to them and we shouldn't scare them away because they're the only ones who can, you know, reverse their courses of action and who have the know-how and uh, technology to, you know, develop energy from renewable sources. What do you think? What is there a role? Is there a role for Exxon in uh, actually combating climate change? Or is, is there no hope for these companies and they should be just shut down? I mean, Exxon knew as early or what was under uh, standard oil, I believe at the time, um, knew in the late 1950s that their, the burning of fossil fuels was ca- causing global warming and did nothing. In fact, they did the opposite. They covered it up. They lobbied against, you know, shifting off fossil fuels. They've done everything in their power to stop the shift to renewables. So we can't rely on them. And, and really, you know, the only reason that fossil fuels are still so prevalent is because governments around the world, especially the U.S., highly subsidize this production. $20 billion goes every year to fossil fuel production in the U.S. And that's despite the fact that renew- the cost of renewable energy, solar and wind, has plummeted in the last 10 years. And it's by far the cheapest form of energy production. But there's just not the political will to you know, make a shift. So really, really what needs to happen is there needs to be public control over the fossil fuel companies mm-hmm. and the energy system and, you know, wean ourselves off of, you know, we'll, we'll need some oil and gas as we make the transition to renewables, but it needs to happen very rapidly. And we can't go on with this production model that's really based on what's most profitable for these corporations and disregarding literally the survival of humanity. I Yeah. And I don't mean to suggest that we could just sort of flip a switch and stop pumping oil and stop using it and not throw the world into chaos. But there's this idea that like if you just if you lay uh, an enticing enough breadcrumb trail, you can lead, you know, BP out of the darkness and toward toward new new profits elsewhere that will be good for everyone. And it just always seems like that's not going to work. One, because of these subsidies that you mentioned, and two, because they're not going to, you know, turn toward it. It just seems like increasingly there's there is absolutely no care for anything that is more than 10 years down the line. Right. Right. I mean, it's it's proven like incentives, regulations on industry, these carbon trading schemes, you know, carbon taxes have done nothing to reduce emissions in any significant way globally. We need direct government control over industry to make the shifts or public control, public ownership. Because they're not going to do it on their own. Because the system of capitalism is based on endless growth and maximizing profits. And they're going to continue to do that. That's just the way the system works. It's not, there's no, you know, there's no enforcement of what's best for humanity under capitalism. Mm-hmm. What's the role of, of personal, like individual consumption and, and personal boycotts in affecting this change? Like, is that something that needs to go alongside political pressure? Or is that basically meaningless without more top-down action? 
Yeah, I mean, we should all try to conserve more and lessen our impact on the environment. But, you know, it's so much beyond the individual consumer habits. It's, you know, or, or the ability of people to boycott because oil is used in so many products in, within our society and runs everything. And, you know, it's just impossible to boycott fossil fuels completely and survive in this within the capitalist system. Um, so what's really needed is, like I said, a mass movement in the streets that's demanding climate action, but is also anti-imperialist and anti-capitalist and, and, and showing the way forward that we need a, a planned socialist economy that's, you know, what is produced is based on the needs of society and it's produced in the most, you know, sustainable way possible for the health and long-term survival of the planet and humanity. Yeah, it's... <laughs> Yes, agreed, agreed. I want to also talk about some uh, reporting on microplastics that we have been seeing lately. Uh, Vox had a big piece on what are called nurdles this week, which are the little plastic beads that are melted down to form the industrial machines that make our products and also are melted down to form the products themselves. But a vast number of these little beads spill into our environment in the process an estimated 200,000 metric tons of nurdles make their way into oceans annually, meaning about 10 trillion of the little things are projected to infiltrate marine ecosystems around the world every year. And we, of course, learned earlier this year that we are all walking around full of microplastics these days, right? The, the story cites research that found microplastics in the blood cells of, I believe it was 80 percent of the people they studied. And so, it, you know, it kind of seems to me that we might be running out of of the ability to even really clearly know what these microplastics do to us if we lose any sort of control population of humans that has not been uh, infiltrated by them. And so, you know, it, like it's you, you can't put this particular genie back in the bottle, but it just reinforces to me that we, we are being subjected to experiments every day by these massive corporations. Right. What do microplastics do to humans on a lifetime scale? We'll find out what happens when temperatures increase beyond two degrees Celsius. Buckle in. We're going to see. And it sort of seems like, again, we you know, we should have some say in this kind of uh, medical research done on our bodies in our lifetimes. Right. I mean, this goes back to corporations controlling what is produced. I mean, yeah. all these things, like all these plastics are the, the contents of chemical compositions are trade secrets. And goes that goes for lots of chemicals, tens of thousands of chemicals that are produced by corporations that no one actually knows what's in them beyond the corporation themselves. And so there's no, yeah, there's no accountability for how it impacts humanity. And there's no way to like trace back, oh, the cancer I got came from that because there's so many toxins in our systems, in the, you know, ecosystems, in our water, in the air. Um, and yeah, plastics is, things should be, need to be, go back to me making things that aren't disposable, that are made to last. They're made to biodegrade. I mean, most of the plastics could be made from bioplastics that would naturally biodegrade. Yeah, I mean, I, the point really, I think, is that if we want to have some the only way to exercise control over corporations this large is through government. Right. And so the only way is to be able to pressure government to do it because we obviously can't rely on them even for a, a sort of a profit motive. We can't rely on them to stop doing the very poisonous thing they're used to that makes them short term money. It has just been demonstrated over and over that I, don't, I think you should just laugh in the face of anyone who suggests that that could be otherwise. Hey, Tina, I know that you are uh, embarking on a, a big new project and I, I wanted 
wanted to ask you to tell our listeners about what, what you've got coming up. Yeah, so end of April, I started um, a national speaking tour that's going to continue through at least through October. We keep adding more cities. But um, yeah, so I'll be speaking about climate solutions beyond capitalism and how, you know, there are real solutions that humanity has the knowledge and capability to implement immediately and how capitalism stands in the way and, and, you know, really hoping to inspire action and optimism around this issue of climate. Um, so, yeah, you can find information about the speaking tour at liberationnews.org, and we're adding new cities and locations every day. So, Can you give us just a short pitch as to why we should be optimistic? Because I would like to hear that. <laughs> well, you know, there are millions of people around the world working on real solutions to climate change. And, you know, if implemented in a comprehensive way globally, could stem the climate crisis within just one generation. You'll never hear that in the corporate media. But, you know, restoring ecosystems, protecting ecosystems, you know, obviously rapidly reducing fossil fuel use, all those things can really shift what's happening globally right now with the warming climate, the cycle of droughts, fires, and floods. It's really possible. There's tons of evidence out there. You just don't hear about it unless you dig. But but there is hope. There is. And people want this change. I mean, I've been speaking, you know, the last month around the country and people are so excited when they hear about the solutions and, you know, the, those who are already working on it, you know, it's just, it's spreading. This awareness is spreading. The action around this issue is spreading and there really is hope. I feel so much better now. Thank you, Tina. That was author Tina Landis. That sounds like a very great speech that she's going to be or uh, talk that she's going to be given as she travels around the country. So I would go and see it. Thanks, Tina Landis. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. We are going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits. You are listening to us. We're on Radio Sputnik and we're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, and we are going to take a minute to talk about the ongoing privatization of even the few protected areas of health care in the United States and why the Biden administration is, on one hand, inviting Wall Street into Medicare while promising to kick the biggest financial institutions out of the nursing home industry. Why is one okay and the other, as he said in his State of the Union, resulting in higher costs and worse care? Weird. <laughs> we are going to get, get into what, what sense that makes, if any, with Bill Honigman. He's a retired emergency physician and California State Coordinator and Healthcare Issue Team Coordinator for Progressive Democrats of America. Bill, it's great to talk to you again. Hey, thanks so much, uh, Michelle and John. Great to be with you. You know, I've long considered myself to be a political misfit. Mm. There you go. Nice, nice to be back with you. It really is. I, I want to talk a little bit more about a topic that is honestly very confusing to me, and that is Medicare Advantage and it, this very similar program that is called uh, the Accountable Care Organization Realizing Equity, Access, and Community Health Program. It's, uh, both are. Uh, the trickles, tendrils of privatization eating into Medicare. 
Joe Biden, going against the wishes of the progressive wing of his party, I, I should note, has expanded a program launched by the Trump administration to bring more privatized health care plans to Medicare and in some cases to enroll people in them, whether they know it or not. And so this, as I understand it, is similar to how Medicare Advantage works. These for-profit plans get a set payment from Medicare for taking a Medicare patient. But then, of course, it seems like if you have paid a set amount for that patient, there's not going to be much motivation to approve treatment that costs any more than what you've already laid out. And of course, you know, I doubt that these calculations are really happening on individual levels, but on a, on a larger scale, you've got to think they would be. Otherwise, why would these for-profit companies get involved? And so I wanted to ask you to talk to us about these for-profit plans that Medicare patients can find themselves enrolled in. And also, who are these? They're called direct contacting contracting entities. Who are these companies that are these private companies that are getting involved? Because as far as I can see, there are not our our standard big private health insurers. Yeah, that's right. And, um, and you know, like you said, um, all of those acronyms are really a mouthful and, uh, and designed really to confuse and obfuscate. So, um, so why, why is that? Uh, you know, you, you have to look a little bit at the history and, um, uh, you know, it, without getting too wonky about it, which you can get very easily go off into the weeds uh, very quickly. But just kind of some basic history, of course, is that, you know, Medicare came out of the Great Depression in the 1930s. It was the brainchild of, of FDR, which uh, who kind of stole it from the Germans and other people around the turn of the century in 1900, uh, who decided that it was much better, more economical, really, as well as moral, to uh, to ensure everybody and provide health care for, for everyone, uh, and it would end up saving money and saving lives. What a concept. Uh, we've had that concept going for, you know, a hundred years or more. Every other advanced country in the world has adopted that philosophy except for us. We tried in 1965, of course, LBJ signed the law, the Medicare Medicaid law um, into um, into act, and it um, it it was just the beginning. I mean, obviously there were inadequacies. Did not provide for uh, dental, vision, hearing, mental health, long term care. But it caught a whole lot of seniors and people with disabilities who were falling through the cracks, living in abject poverty. You know, eating dog food, that kind of thing that that happened in the depression, uh, and and of course dying miserable early deaths. Uh, and so so that was a very good thing. Uh, unfortunately, you have um, politicians, unscrupulous politicians in both parties, really, who depend on uh, uh, corporate donations who uh, undermined uh, even that much progress. That was started really from day one there in 1965. So by the time you had especially Republican administrations uh, and uh, sympathetic Congresses, like, say, through the Bush administrations, uh, by the time of Bush, too, even, you had introduction of parts A, B, C, and D, these 
mentals is horrible uh, copay for prescription uh, drugs that that ended up with a donut hole that people would fall through where they made too much money from their their pensions even a meager pension would would uh, provide too much money to qualify for prescription drugs so people fell into this uh, uh, donut hole they had to invent what were called Medigap insurances that would then provide more care that Medicare did not provide for. Those Medigap insurances were, of course, owned and operated by uh uh, corporate commercial entities um, that chose, you know, of course, always their bottom line uh, to to put forward, and uh, and that has been perpetuated into what you mentioned, uh, things like this ACO Reach program, which was really the the brainchild that came out of. Uh, Trump, uh, the Trump administration doubling down on Medicare Advantage um, with direct contracting entities. The DCE program was, uh, came from the Trump administration. Now, the Biden administration is perpetuating that um, with this ACO REACH program that does basically the same thing. It signs up people for Medicare Advantage, whether they want it or not. All those ads you see on TV, you know, Mm -hmm. Amoth or whoever it is that's pushing some Medicare Advantage bogus plan on TV. Um, This thing, this ACO REACH, um, like what was designed by Trump, um, will put you into one of those programs whether you want to be there or not. And it's just filled with corporate uh, shenanigans that are both um, ineffective and uh, they're inefficient and ineffective to the point where it will not provide the services to people that that they need and that will cause uh, preventable deaths. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, my question really is, I mean, Biden did stand up in his State of the Union and said, we got to get Wall Street out of nursing homes. You know, as Wall Street firms take over more nursing homes, quality in those homes have gone down and costs have gone up. And yet again, against the expressed will of people like Pramila Jayapal, another Democrat, the leader of the House Progressive Caucus, and dozens of other Democratic lawmakers calling on him to end the program. Why? Why expand it? Well, that kind of reminds me of when Hillary Clinton told Wall Street to cut it out, you know, yeah. unscrupulous um, a mortgage um, lending. Uh, you know, so so that's the feeling you get here, at least with uh, the Biden administration telling, you know, Wall Street to cut it out. Uh, and even in terms of, as you mentioned, the nursing home debacle. Especially, you know, with this, where they have uh, private equity firms now who are uh, handling these uh, Medicare Advantage plans as as well as these direct contracting entities now called uh, ACO REACH. So Mm -hmm. um, that just proves that, you know, Wall Street, uh, as you say, has its tentacles into healthcare, you know, to the point where where it's going to take major reform to extract them. Can you talk to me about what is the relationship between, you know, like the Carlisle Group and one of these uh, direct contracting entities? Because I still do not understand. Like they're not it's not like care first. It's not Kaiser Permanente. Right. They're not they're not big health insurance companies. And I just do not know even what they are. It's just another layer of health 
middleman or are they companies that are created expressly to sort of be a front for big Wall Street inve- like financial institutions? You and me both. So yeah. <laughs> I wish it was just Kaiser or, you know, or um, I don't know who like. Uh, um, Care first. Yeah. You know, or or even some some more reputable, um, uh, you know, like the Puget Sound or sure. um, oh, I'm blanking on the name up in, um, in Minnesota, you know, some some well-known and respected um, health care uh, uh, you know, provider group. I mean, I wish it was just those provider groups that were doing this. These are, you know, strictly corporate entities um, and and intermediaries. Um, and whenever you hear the term intermediary, you know, what's another name for that? Third party. Yeah. Right? So third parties are morally corrupt. And, and that's because we're dealing with a public need in this situation. When somebody extracts profit from what's a public need, that's, that's immoral. So, um, so now we've got, you know, even uh, less accountability because it's not a big group like Kaiser or, um, uh, you know, uh, some other health provider group. It's, it's a strictly uh, corporate entity, you know, kind of like uh, a Wall Street uh, uh, generated um, entity that's, that's conducting this. And you can bet that their priorities are their bottom line. Uh, and, you know, and if I can, I'll just jump ahead to, um, to COVID as the example. Please. COVID, COVID-19 um, is the perfect example of what happens in that situation. And we've seen extreme and exorbitant profits going to CEOs, you know, of these, these corporate entities and intermediaries, while um, the United States still to this day is the world's leader in preventable COVID deaths. And, and why is that? Because we have no way to prioritize, you know, above the bare minimum um, for uh, treatment, for uh, testing, for contact tracing. We can't um, uh, uh, get rid of the fragmentation that we have in our system. So um, our, our systems don't talk to each other. Um, there's no way to coordinate information. Um, all of that is being protected by, by proprietary interests, meaning these same corporate entities won't allow for it. And that's to, to shovel the money basically into the pockets of the CEOs while people die from this virus. What we need is, you know, obviously we need universal testing, which we do not have yet. Very nice of them to say, okay, everyone go out and get your own test. That's not universal testing. Doing that still in places like South Korea and Cuba and all around the world, as I mentioned to you early on in this pandemic, um, we're not doing it here. We need contact tracing. That's where healthcare information systems talk to each other. We can actually understand how much uh, prevalence and incidence there is of a virus in different places around this country. And we need universal treatment, you know, where where people can get all of the treatment, including taking care of their medical comorbidities that put them at risk, like heart disease, diabetes, et cetera. So we don't have 
any of that stuff that everywhere else around the world they have, and that's why we're doing so poorly, which all says we need a system like Medicare for all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and to really stop perpetuating this idea that, you know, the profit motive uh, in healthcare is acceptable at all, right? That it will, you can ever sort of motivate some, so that somehow you can make money off of sick people or make money off of healthy people. I mean, it's just, it's an outrage and it's, it is wild to me that this is sort of this level of hypocrisy. The administration has just kind of gone down. I mean, obviously, you've had uh, Democrats who, are, who have been trying to put up a fight. But it is very funny to me that you can sort of stand up and make getting Wall Street out of nursing homes a talking point while you, with the other hand, just continue to erode one of the, you know, one of the more important and better government programs that we have. Absolutely true. And, and there are champions um, in Congress, even um, there, you know, for example, uh, my own, I'm lucky enough to be represented by Katie Porter mm-hmm. from Orange County, California. Um, she is, you know, she reminds me of kind of a younger female version of Ralph Nader, mm-hmm. not quite as crusty. <laughs> Uh, but, um, uh, you know, one person can't do it alone, but but she's fighting, you know, right now, she's fighting with the Biden administration on these DCEs and, um, and ACO reach. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are people in Congress who are, you know, uh, willing to look at this critically and say, no, this is the wrong direction we're going in. This is not social advancement. Um, the... Uh, uh, the, the organizations that are most on top of this, you know, across the country um, are, uh, uh, for example, uh, Physicians for National Health Program, that's PNHP, mm-hmm. um, Social Security Works, of course, they're, they're strong advocates and public citizen. Um, they're very on top of this as well. If people want to find out more information on, on this subject in particular, but, you know, uh, just yesterday, uh, you, you're probably aware that um, that Senator Bernie Sanders uh, finally <laughs> reintroduced the Senate version of his Medicare for All Act. And, uh, it was fantastic because he did it at his own you know committee hearing, uh, the Budget Committee of, of the United States Senate uh, that he now chairs, and uh, and that was a fantastic uh, hearing and and presentations that were made. But you know what? The uh, ranking member of the committee, Lindsey Graham, uh, he had a very strong point. He said, you know, if he said, go ahead and vote on it. You won't have the vote even among the Democrats. Yeah. Care for all, you know, today if it happened. And that's because we still have way too many uh, politicians you know, that are in the pockets of these uh, commercial corporate entities who are uh, basically pulling all the strings and controlling all this. Well, I'm just actually looking at Open Secrets right now. Their uh, top in, list of top industries of uh, revolving door people going from, you know, uh, positions in uh, positions in Congress, not necessarily Congress people, but aides, staffers, whatever, and going to industries. And what do you know? Insurance is number four. Uh, health services and HMOs, that's number eight. Hospitals and nursing homes, number 11. So, yeah, I mean, I think we can we can see part of the problem right there. I want to ask before we let you go, Bill, you, you've mentioned COVID. Uh, and I think this will, you know, it, it, to some degree overlap from our discussion about COVID just now. But we have been watching here for the last couple of months as Congress has tried and failed to pass new funding 
for COVID testing and, and COVID treatment. And I am wondering if you are, you know, not only, um, of course, seeing us continue to, to fail to do what we ought to do and offer a more comprehensive approach, uh, approach to this virus, but if you are seeing any direct effects of, of watching this funding actually dry up. Uh, sure, absolutely. So, so you know, you can see it manifest in, in many ways, but I think um, one of the biggest ways is this reluctance still of so many to get vaccinated. Uh, and the vaccines uh, also still uh, that are needed elsewhere around the world. So why are we still having surges of this uh, virus at all um, in this country or even around the world um, is a result of that uh, lack of funding uh, and and the politics uh, surrounding that. Um, and, and why do I say that? Because, you know, we want to blame, uh, you know, point the finger blame at individuals not necessarily at systems. It seems easier to blame individuals than to fix the systems. The systems are causing us to believe misinformation, um, where if we could have unlimited access to trusted sources of medical information, then more of us would do the right thing and get vaccinated, as well as providing uh, for all those uh, prioritized spending needs that I, I spoke about earlier. So, you know, in, in other countries around the world, um, you get to see and talk to your doctor uh, on a much more regular and easy basis. And that, you know, they, they still have doubters on, on vaccinations around the world. It's much, much easier, and people believe the science, which they should, uh, in, in countries where they have universal health care. That's where we have to go. Um, that's one of the lessons we should be learning from this pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. And it's remarkable to me that we can be, you know, seeing ed- editorials in The Washington Post and elsewhere talking about, you know, what, what we should learn from the COVID-19 pandemic is sort of everything but have a robust healthcare system to start, have a healthier population to start with. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I do hope we learn some of those lessons, Bill. That was Bill Honigman. He's a retired emergency physician and he's California State Coordinator and Healthcare Coord- Team Coordinator for Progressive Democrats of America. Thanks as always for joining us, Bill. Thank you, my pleasure. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're gonna take a quick break and come right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, and we're about to get into the politics part of news, politics, and culture with producer Ray Valencia, who's also a Sputnik news analyst. But I just had to, since we've been on Musk Watch, mm-hmm. just had to update everyone on how very silly it is that Elon Musk, I mean, again, who knows how much of this entire thing remains a charade, right? Right. But it is especially comic uh, to have Elon Musk hopping onto Twitter to say, hold on, I might 
put this, you know, put my effort to buy Twitter on hold, not because of the market crashing and the cryptocurrency route and Tesla losing a bunch of money. No, no. It's because of a new report that shows bots and spammers are actually less than 5% of Twitter users. Because I guess he is trying to trying to say or making a joke about how, you know, he, he really wanted to buy Twitter to fix it, to, to change the user experience and make it better. But if it's actually not as bad as it seemed, according to this research and not his experience as a Twitter user, oh, well, maybe we don't need him anymore and he can fly off and rescue some other poor social media company instead. So he did tweet later that he was still committed to the acquisition. We will see if that ever happened. But that is that is really one of the funniest things I've ever seen. And if you're an investigator at the Securities and Exchange Committee or Commission, you have to you have to be assembling a team right now to investigate this. I've never in my life seen somebody who is happier to manipulate stock prices yeah. than Elon Musk. He does it all the time. He does it all the time. But also, we've had guests on here say, you know what? He's not he sort of does it in a in a an unusual way, mm-hmm. but he doesn't really do it any more than anybody than than other big players are. It's probably and true. So, like, but he yeah, does the, it publicly. Sure, and the SEC is always is always after him, and as uh, quite happy to see it. Mm-hmm. But like, I do think I think that again, I think Elon Musk and Tesla are sort of sy- symptoms of the problem rather than causes most Agreed. of the time. Yeah. Agreed. Yep. Well, it is time for Politics Friday. This is actually our last Friday installment of our little political segment. Uh, we're going to move it to Wednesdays because most of the primaries are on Tuesdays. So that way, when we give you the news, it's going to be it's going to be fresh and exciting. And today we're going to talk about Pennsylvania. We're going to talk about um, North Carolina, a little update on Georgia and an absolutely fascinating and crazy race for governor in Idaho of all places. And then Ray has uh, some other issues that she wants to bring up. But Ray, I want to start with Pennsylvania. And I'm smiling because it's like the Republican Party is going nuts in Pennsylvania. Um, the, the, for the Democrats, it it's easy. It looks like the numbers are pretty well locked in. Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman is going to be the Democratic nominee for the U.S. Senate seat. Uh, and State Attorney General Josh Shapiro will be the Democratic nominee for governor. They don't have real opposition that those are both easy races. But the Republican side is like a game of roller derby where they're just going around in a circle and then punching each other in the face as they pass one another. Right. Well, that's I I was going to bring that up. Um, Here's the latest in six polls for the Senate race. TV quack Mehmet Oz uh, leads in five of six polls by one point, two, 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 and three points. A poll by the Trafalgar Group, which is the most unreliable of the Republican-leading leaning polls, has David McCormick beating Oz by three. But today's New York Times has an article and a poll saying that a woman by the name of Kathy Barnett, who has zero experience in politics has surged into first place among the Republicans. Now who's Kathy Barnett? She is a black Republican Trump supporter from Alabama. She's new to Pennsylvania 
And what's interesting about her is that she claims to have gone to Troy State University and then uh, to have gotten a, a master's degree at a school that I never heard of. And she claims to have been in the army for 10 years. Uh, and it turns out that nobody is able to actually confirm any of the information that's in her bio. All that we really know is that she was born in Alabama and that she showed up in Pennsylvania in 2018 and ran for Congress. That's it. Um, she won't release any of her educational records. She claims to have been an adjunct professor, but won't say where. Uh, and she uh, won't release her uh, whatever it's called, DS-2247 from the Pentagon. So how is she moving up in the polls? I mean, what? Because she's saying like all right the right now? things. She's mm. saying death to gays. Oh. She's saying ban abortion ban under abortion. all circumstances. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump for sainthood. Okay. What? Yeah. Okay. It's it's all these red meat issues yeah. that the farthest right wing of the Pennsylvania Republican Party wants to hear. In the meantime, McCormick and Oz are just beating each other yeah, up over, yeah. you know, who's more mainstream. I know. McCormick, he keeps trying to remind everybody, hey, you know, I'm a Pennsylvanian and Oz just moved here yesterday. But it, it's it's crazy. Well, the governor's race is just as crazy. I'm smiling because. I know. It really I is crazy. Going talking about that. But yeah, I've been watching this. Well, too. There's, it's amazing. there's a state senator by the name of Doug Mastriano. Mm -hmm. um, Mastriano has opened up a huge lead. And it's panicking the Republican Party because mm -hmm. Mastriano attended the January 6th riot mm -hmm. at the Capitol. He claims that he left just before the rioting began. Um, but he's all for it, you know, wow. hang pants and all that stuff. He's opened up a lead of 10 percentage points. Um, the state Republican Party is doing everything it can to stop him from winning the nomination because he's one of those can't win in the fall mm -hmm. uh, candidates. They're spending one point six million dollars uh, in ads to attack him <laughs> between now and Tuesday. A poll released yesterday shows Mastriano with 20, 27 percent, followed by former Congressman Lou Barletta at 17 percent. Uh, businessman and hedge fund uh, billionaire Dave White, 15 percent, mm -hmm. and former U.S. attorney William McSwain at 14 percent. Jake Corman, who is a serious person in Pennsylvania politics mm -hmm. as president of the Senate, dropped out yesterday. Hmm. He was polling 5 percent. Hmm. He dropped out and endorsed Barletta, the number two guy. Wow. Trump now says that he doesn't care who wins so long as it's not McSwain, the U.S. attorney. Well, he kind of did that in Ohio. Yes. Didn't, he, didn't he mix up the names? Well, he no, no. Like a he said JD he doesn't Vance, want McSwain Mandel to win thing. because McSwain yeah. won't say that Trump won Pennsylvania and ah. the state was stolen from him. I see. So, uh, you know, the interesting thing, too, and this was also in The New York Times, no matter who wins the Republican primary, they're going to they're going to start the general election broke and they're going to have a tough time against Josh Shapiro, who's very popular. Uh, and that's pretty much nationally the only good news for the Democrats. Most of the news is bad otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, North Carolina is close, too, but it's not as interesting as Pennsylvania is. Uh, there are 14 Republicans running for the Senate nomination. Uh, Representative Ted Budd 
is surging ahead of mm-hmm. former Governor Pat McCrory, 43 to 16, which is kind of shocking to me. There's a former congressman by the name of Mark Walker, who's at 12 percent. Uh, the other 11 candidates are not a factor. On the Democratic side, former state Supreme Court Justice Sherry Beasley doesn't have any real competition among Democrats. But in a head to head matchup, she's trailing Bud 48 to 41. Trump endorsed Bud a year ago and has been consistently supportive uh, in the Georgia Senate race. And, and this one is not Tuesday. This one's a week from Tuesday. So there's still another week for Herschel Walker to self-destruct. <laughs> we know that Herschel Walker is still leading among Republicans. We don't know by how much because there have been no new polls in the last two weeks. But Donald Trump made an odd statement a few uh, days ago. He said that Herschel Walker couldn't win this race if Governor Brian Kemp wins the, the Republican yeah. nominee for nomination for governor, if he wins, wins re-election as governor. Uh, you'll remember that Trump and Kemp hate each other's yeah, guts. absolutely. Yeah. Well, a Democratic poll was released, and it shows Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock beating Walker 50 to 45. That's mm. outside the margin of error. Meanwhile, Kemp is crushing Trump's chosen gubernatorial candidate, David Perdue, by like 35 percentage points. The only reason I'm bringing this up Mm -hmm. is that yesterday, Mike Pence decided to scrap it out with Trump and he endorsed Kemp. So Pence is going to Georgia to personally take on Donald Trump. You know what? Good for Mike Pence. You know, whatever was left of their relationship, (laughs) it's over now. Yeah. Yeah, that's wild. And, you know, I think once we get to the general election too, assuming that Herschel Walker makes it, which it looks like he will, he's not going to debate Warnock. He's ah, going to run this I'm glad down you brought in the that bunker up. campaign that's not going to work. I'm glad you brought that up. Herschel Walker will not debate Raphael Warnock because Herschel Walker says he doesn't debate. Now, the reason why he doesn't debate, in all seriousness, is that he's too he, stupid to make it through debate. a debate. I mean, Warnock would, oh, man. Yeah, Warnock would just, it would just be sad. tear him up. Yeah. Um, real but quickly, those, before those I turn it over to you. For, I just haven't seen that work. Have you in, in no. campaigns where you where you go inside? Only and, when you're so far ahead that all a debate would do would be to legitimize your opponent. Yeah. So but I'm he's from, running against an incumbent. Yeah, I'm I'm from Southern California. And Daryl Issa did the same thing. He right. was a he was a long term congressman. Yeah. In, a billionaire. Uh, yeah, he billionaire. Invented, he invented that stick that you put on your uh, steering wheel oh, so no, people no, can't no. steal your you car. You know what it was that he did? It was called the Viper Car Alarm. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's that was, was the first money, right? And it was that when you walked up to the car, yeah. it would say, from the step car. away from the car. And yeah. it was Daryl Ice's voice. Yeah. But anyway, he was a very safe uh, member and he never campaigned. He never saw him around. Nope. And then the district started to change mm-hmm. and he just retired. He goes, oh, I'm not going to run again. And then he reemerged in a yeah. neighboring district that's Came more back. red. Yep. So the, the you know, the bunker campaigns, I, I don't think it's an effective strategy. You know, it's not working. Before I turn it over to you, mm-hmm. I want to talk for a minute about uh, Idaho. Mm. Normally, I would never even bring up Idaho. (laughs) It's one of the reddest states in America. Mm -hmm. It's just not terribly interesting. But the Idaho gubernatorial race is one, it's turning out to be one of the strangest in the country. The chairman of the Idaho Republican Party said day before yesterday that this is unlike any other race in America. 
The incumbent governor is a guy by the name of Brad Little. He's a Republican. Uh, He's been governor for four years now. The incumbent lieutenant governor, also a Republican, is a woman by the name of Janice McGeekin. Okay? They hate each other about as much as two human beings can hate each other. So the question I have, did they run together? No, good question. something happen? Good question. Idaho is one of those rare states where the governor and lieutenant governor do not run as a ticket. They run independent, separate races. So they've never liked each other. Mm, And they didn't run together. Um, So twice in the past two years, I should actually rephrase that and say, actually, it was three times in the last three years. When Little left the state on official business, he goes to the governor's conference, mm-hmm. he comes to Washington, whatever. McGeekin issued executive orders that the governor had to reverse when he got back home to Idaho. Okay, first, he goes on a trip to Washington, and as soon as he leaves the state, she ends mask mandates. Mm. After he specifically told her not to do that, she did it anyway. Then he left. To go to the governor's uh, conference and she ended the vaccine mandate and she outlawed appropriating money for COVID testing. (laughs) So then he had to come back and rescind those executive orders. A year earlier, when he went to the national governor's conference, she deployed Idaho National Guard troops to the border between Texas and Mexico. And then he had to bring all the troops back a week later. McGeekin calls Little called, or quote, Little Brad and Little Brad (laughs) the Rhino, unquote. Mm. Yeah. Little says McGeekin is guilty of abuse of power and is not in her right mind. It's probably no surprise that Trump has endorsed McGeekin. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, A poll in January showed her losing that race to little 59 to 18. Wow. Uh, This is not a state where there's a lot of polling going on. And it took me a good 45 minutes to find a a more updated poll. I finally found one from four weeks ago that shows little beating McGeekin 62 to 30. And this primary is on Tuesday as well. This primary is on Tuesday. Yeah. So let's go back to Pennsylvania Pennsylvania. and tell me what you're thinking about Pennsylvania. Well, things are looking hopeful for the Democrats there. Uh, I guess we're looking at Fetterman versus Oz for Senate and Shapiro versus Mastriano for governor and PA. And more conservative candidates are gaining in the polls. And it's interesting because there is this tension in both parties between the more um, conservative for populist wing and the establishment wing. And we saw an article today in the New York Times talking yes. about Connor Lamb. Front page. Right. Like Why what happened he's to losing, Connor Lamb? Right. And I think yeah. this is an example of, and it's like the party isn't figuring this out. And that's why it's just such well, a problem. You know, it's interesting about Pennsylvania. You know, I'm from mm-hmm. Pennsylvania, of course. And, um, and Pennsylvania tends to have Republican, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Democratic governors and Republican legislatures, Mm -hmm. and they learn to work together. So you've got sort of the the Democratic establishment and the Republican establishment, and sometimes the Democrats will take over the state house. The Republicans always keep the state Senate, but they've come to learn to work together over the years. Mm -hmm. This is different now. 
the Republicans, it's like they don't know what's happening to their party. Where yeah. did these where did these yeah. outsiders come from? Where, where did, did the these outside? populists come and, from? And the hold that Trump has had, you know, yeah. there's something I've been thinking a lot about. It's like the the tension within the Republicans is, are they going to run on this? Uh, the election was stolen from us. We're really aligned with Trump. Or are other issues going to be more dominant, such as the economy? I just can't imagine that when you get to election day, you know, that the most important issue for a Republican is going to be that they feel that the election was stolen from Donald Trump. Right. Right. And so it's these economic issues that I think are really going to leap forward. I I agree. Yeah, I agree. You know, know, Pennsylvania is is a Rust Belt state, but it's still a state for which manufacturing is important. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have to think about the coal mines and the steel mills Mm -hmm. and the tin mills and the aluminum smelters. And farming, yeah, you know, uh, uh, Pennsylvania is is uh, an agricultural state. Agriculture is the fourth biggest industry in the state. It has been for many, many years. Uh, at least one of the senators at any given time sits on the uh, agriculture committee. They they have to. The Republicans are going to have to pay attention to. Getting Pennsylvanians back to work or keeping Pennsylvanians in jobs. Yeah, that's the conversation stop they're really going to have to have mm-hmm. because what people are concerned about, what all Americans are concerned about is how much more am I spending on stuff this year than I was last year? Yes. And that's what's going to drive them. And it's really important in these early primary states because if you win here, it makes it a lot less difficult when you get later into the season, when we get into Arizona and other states. And I keep thinking about how much the issue of abortion is going to play in terms of a wedge issue between the populist, the more conservative wings of the parties, and the centrist. Because in Pennsylvania, you know, like Pennsylvania is not Mississippi, right? And you have Mastriano who's running and could possibly win. And yep. while he was in the state house, yep. He um, was on board for a bill that calls for no exceptions, a total ban on abortion, Mm -hmm. no exceptions for Mm -hmm. rape, incest, Mm -hmm. you know. And when you talk about economics, we've been talking a lot about inflation, the stock market. These things are cycle to cycle. But I'm telling you, you know, if abortion is no longer an option for women, that is a deep, long-lasting economic issue. Kathy Barnett, who's surging in the polls in that Senate race, we said was this black Trump Republican. Uh, Her mother was raped at the age of 11 Mm -hmm. and she gave birth to her, to Kathy Barnett at the age of 12. And so this is her life story. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why she says she's opposed to abortion under any circumstances. Right. And they live in this fantasy that Every child is going to be adopted and mm-hmm, cared for. Mm-hmm. And these are the same people that don't want to fund the social safety net, right? Medicaid for children, survivorship right. benefits. So if your parents die, I grew up in foster care. Yeah. Both my parents were deceased by the time I was 14. And, you know, survivorship benefits. Right. Medicaid. Right. Funds so I can live in a home and not live in an institutional type mm-hmm. of situation. I mean, that's the kind of effect that having that kind of childhood had on me. I don't understand this conservative, you know, um, you're on your own kind of idea. 
My sister or said something to me yesterday. Somebody's going to rescue you. There's also this idea that you're going to yeah, be rescued. Yeah, you'll be rescued. My sister adopted a child from uh, foster care, and she pointed out to me yesterday that there are 443,000 children in foster care across America right now. Oh, 443,000 yeah. children eligible to be adopted, or yeah. many of whom are and eligible to be adopted. I did a little research on. On abortion, like how many abortions every year and what would it mean if Roe v. Wade is reversed? So yeah. right now, about 900,000 abortions a year. Uh, the rate has been declining over the past several years because of more effective birth control and more mm-hmm. access to birth control, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So you roll that back and economists are estimating that out of the 900,000 abortions, that 100,000 um, women are going to have to carry their pregnancy to term because of all the anti-abortion laws. Yes. Okay. So you're going to have a hundred thousand, hundred thousand more births. And most of the women, fifty-nine percent of them, already have children. The reason why they want to terminate a pregnancy is because they understand the cost of having children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and they can't bear it because there's been a job loss. They don't have a partner. There's not the family support. Yes. You know, that's what leads people to terminate a pregnancy. Yes. Oftentimes it does. Mm-hmm. You know. Absolutely right. So I think the economics of abortion is going to get pushed forward. And I've been watching a lot, too, well, in terms of the protests and the activists. I think that's. Yes. Gonna... I wanted to ask you about that, actually. What do you make of this comment that Chuck Todd uh, made that not a single one of the 50 members of the of the Senate from the Republican Party were willing to go and meet the press over the weekend to talk about abortion. Yeah, not you, a sing, they asked all 50 senators. Oh, they're on the run on this? Not those? a single one would go. But yeah. that's surprising to me because, again, as we were talking about, I mean, unless this is wrong, right? Joe Manchin also voted to block that and then yeah. saw support. He hasn't Increase. seen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm... I, I don't know that it would be. But I, I think I do understand Go ahead. because he's a he's a Democrat. And so it it's a way of ingratiating himself with Republicans. I think yeah, Republicans go, oh, on the hey, other side, he's our guy. Yeah, I they think. don't want to motivate Democrats. Yeah, I think that's what it I was. That's, that's why there, so many of them, I think, are angry about this comment that uh, Mitch McConnell made that once the decision comes down from the Supreme Court, that the Republicans in the Senate are willing to to entertain the notion of a of right. a federal ban. But you know what that did? That just pushed Schumer oh, yeah. right into putting together this message bill, the Women's Protection Act, yeah. which failed in the Senate. But he was able to get Bob Casey to support it. Yeah. Who I was shocked a, by that. Yeah. He's a pro uh he's an yeah he's, he's a, pro-life, a pro-life Democrat. Democrat. In fact his father uh, was the governor of yes. Pennsylvania and was That's famously an disinvited from the 1992 Democratic Convention because he was pro-life. Well, it's also, you know, Pennsylvania, what is Eastern Pennsylvania yeah. versus Casey. That's the Casey. Right. That's Casey. Know? Yeah. yeah. Which, uh, you know, kind of fortified Roe, but it also paved yeah. the way for restrictions. That's right. So I think it's going to be interesting to see this tension because then you have, you know, on the Democratic side, is there going to be any room for a pro-life Democrat? Well, they're, you know, actively <laughs> trying to ensure that Henry Cuellar. Yes. You yes. Know, even though again, I'm just so looking, interesting. Pelosi endorsed Cuellar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She, she went to campaign for him. Yes. 
And it, the, you know, so at the same time, their mantra is hire more Democrats because we're going to protect your rights. Right. And again, uh, I'm just seeing this is a report in the Texas uh, Signal. His uh, opponent, Jessica Cisneros, has outraised him. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. She's going to win very easily go, She's hey, you know what? Yeah. yeah, she is. <laughs> She's but they're defending him, him to mm-hmm. the death because they would yep. rather defend the establishment candidates. That's right. Then they would support progressives who actually represent more of what the, the people actually want. want. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Couldn't it, agree that is, more. I mean, again, like the hypocrisy we're talking about today, I mean, it gets, it's sort of pointless to just point out hypocrisy, but it is still, I don't know, there's, there's some, there's got to be some meaning to it when you are talking about a party that's sort of actively campaigning on an issue. Yeah. Um, we've got, I mean, we could go on for the rest of the show, but we've got... <laughs> News of the weird. Did you? I want also kind of. Do you want to talk about this Madison Cawthorn story in CNN? Please. Just briefly. This is just. Yeah. This is, CNN just dropped a story on Madison Cawthorn just in the last hour or so. The headline is GOP looks to marginalize Cawthorn if he wins Tuesday primary. Yeah. And so they, in private discussions, they're debating ways to keep Cawthorn on the sidelines if he wins. Uh, relegating him to less less favorable committees. Oh, perish the thought. <laughs> no, but you'd be surprised. But, they do that as punishment. Mm-hmm. Like if you're from if you're from uh, an agricultural state, for example, they'll put you on the uh, you know the environment committee. Yeah. Or the commerce committee. They'll keep you off of agriculture so you can't help your constituents. This is just fun. This is a very funny quote. And again, these are all with CNN is saying they spoke to uh, a, dozen a dozen lawmakers, but none yeah. of them are on the record. Right. Uh, one of them said, I met with the guy and said, don't break the law again. Again. You break the law one more time. I'm going to start calling for you to be kicked out. And I don't mean kicked out of the Freedom Caucus. I mean, kicked out of the conference. Uh-huh. He's a black eye on our conference. Uh-huh. So, but don't break the law again. God, the bar is low. He has four <laughs> pending criminal cases right now, right? Uh, twice uh. driving with a suspended license, and he won't say why it's been suspended, and twice bringing a loaded gun to the airport. I mean, yeah. I will, who, who, we'll see if he wins this and then see what they do. But yeah, they've obviously decided that he is not uh, an asset. No, no. If it's okay with the two of you, I'm going to go right into News of the Weird. Yeah, do it. We're starting mm-hmm. to, uh, to come up to the end of the show, and there's uh, several fun things I wanted to, uh, to tell fun. you about. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, made a, I made a little joke uh, as I was writing this that we could call this News of the Weird from the mainstream media today because these are like mainstream. I didn't have to search obscure publications yeah. to find these stories. Let's begin with South Carolina. According to CNN— Police in Edgefield County, South Carolina, found the body of 60-year-old Joseph McKinnon, who appeared to have died of natural causes, a heart attack, uh, actually. What was strange, though, was that his body was found next to a half-dug grave. And then next to the grave, wrapped in plastic sheeting, was the body of McKinnon's girlfriend, 65-year-old Patricia Dent. They didn't have too much trouble piecing this together. What happened was McKinnon and Dent had gotten into an argument at their house. Mm -hmm. The argument turned into a fight, and then he hit her in the head with a blunt object, and he killed her. So then he wrapped up her body in plastic. He took her out to the woods to bury her. 
I saw a picture of him. He was in no kind of condition to be digging graves. Digging is hard work if you're <laughs> not used to it. I yeah. thought it'd be fun to help a friend uh, like d- dig a bunch of holes to make a fence. That's not fun. I like wrenched my knee imme- immediately hurt he, myself. He was only but two feet down and he had a heart attack and dropped dead right this there next to the grave. This has got to be one of those like, you know, the, the riddles where it's like a body is found in a locked room. There's a puddle of water. The windows are barred. W- what could have happened? Wow, this is, uh, that's that's pretty funny. <laughs> How about this from the BBC? This just uh, was published today. A panel of balding British judges, and they really were all bald. I saw a picture of them. Ruled yesterday that calling a man bald in the workplace is now considered to be sexual harassment. I'm genuinely upset at this one. <laughs> it is so absurd to I don't me. I think it's wear those wigs, though. But I mean, why is it I mean, sexual harassment? It's, it's sexual harassment. Sexual it's harassment. not, it's not, not yes. everything is sexual, folks. No. Well, they said that because so many more men than women are bald, it is inherently related to gender. And so calling a man bald is akin to commenting on the size of a woman's breasts. The case stems from an incident where a shop employee, Tony Finn, got into a dispute with his female boss, Jamie King, and King called him, quote, a fat, bald C-word, unquote. And then she fired him. So he sued. The judges were having none of that, and they ordered that he be reinstated and his compensation will be determined at a later date. I mean, <laughs> again, you should you can say like you're not allowed to sort of verbally harass your employees. You're not supposed to call people names, although, you know, having a law against calling people names seems very silly. But bald is sexual harassment. I will go to yeah. my I will die on this hill. That's ridiculous. That That's a real stretch. They just had to reclaim it from Jada Pinkett Smith. Seriously. She, was oh, a, she, she yeah. had the bald, the, the championship, <laughs> the title belts of the baldness in media. And sexy, now, right? It oh, is. She just is losing her hair. Yeah, she has yeah, alopecia, she has alopecia. Right? Yeah, But like, uh, this is ridiculous. Okay. During a funeral in uh, Peru, in a village that I just can't pronounce, uh, pallbearers were stunned to hear knocking coming from inside the coffin of Rosa. Isabel Cespedes, uh, as they carried her to her grave, mm-hmm. right? They're walking out of the church, walking to the grave. She starts knocking from the inside of the coffin. So they set it down on the ground. They open the there? lid. And there she is, weak but alive. She had been in a serious car accident. They figured she was dead. So they just put her in the coffin. Please do not ever oh figure God, I'm like dead nightmare. and just get things rolling. Wow. You know, in all seriousness, uh, one of the final things that George Washington said before he died was don't put me in a coffin for three days to make sure I'm dead. Because this used to be a serious problem. Can I can I give you an update on the pl- the flight? The plane uh, landing yesterday by a yeah, dude yesterday, yeah, the day right. before, earlier this week by a dude. We were saying we, we listened to we listened to the audio of him going, uh, OK, can you uh, tell me how to turn on my instrument panel, please? Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and we'd said, eh, he's in this little plane. Maybe he has some like he's seen it before. He's had some flight experience. No. And also, apparently he was in the back seat. Oh, so the pilot has whatever this medical emergency is. He's slumped over the controls. He has to climb up. From the back seat while the plane's in a nosedive, push the pilot out of the way, pull the plane out of this nosedive, figure out how to like plug in the headset that can allow him to communicate with the uh, flight controllers. And then 
get into, uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess I could see the coast of Florida in front of me, and maybe you could tell oh me how to fly God. this plane. So, yeah, he, he said he'd never, never flown before. You know, when I was getting my pilot's license, um, the instructor sitting next to me, of course, he told me, you see that TV tower over there? I want you to fly over that TV tower. And I said, no, I, I'm uncomfortable doing that. I'm going to fly around it. And he said, no, he's very calm. Actually, he was like this. No, you're a thousand feet above the TV tower. You can go ahead and fly above it. Aww. And I said, no, I'm afraid that there's going to be a wind shear or something and it's going to crash me into the TV tower. And then he goes, I'm going to reach across you and open the window because you're sweating profusely. <laughs> So it took me a good six weeks before I had the guts to fly over the TV tower. Fair enough. Yeah, I would have totally knocked out Channel 27 You can never tell when those things are going to blast off. The things that go through your mind, you know, when you're doing something like that. Listen, I know. I know what goes through my mind when I I might fall uh, six inches at the climbing gym. And it's like, God forbid, you know, six inches and then land softly on a rope. But I I wasn't even going to get a pilot's license, but my first wife told me I was too stupid to do it. So I did it just to spite her. Okay, next story. Harry Matadine, age 34, from Hampshire, England, has a wellness tip to share with the world. He drinks his own urine. And what's more than that, he also rubs urine all over his face. So the British press is saying that Matadine claims that his habit, which he began doing in 2016, keeps him looking young and has cured his depression, if you can imagine. Okay. He says, I felt a new sense of peace, calm, and determination, he says, of drinking 200 milliliters of urine a day. The skin therapy keeps his face young, soft, and glowing, although he admitted that urine is an acquired taste. But he said that fresh urine is never as bad as you imagine. It's neutral smelling and not a bad taste, unless you're really toxic. Um, His family does not approve, and his sister no longer speaks to him. Probably because he smells... Uh, did you hear nice. about the Thai cult leader who was arrested? He'd been uh, living deep <laughs> in the woods of Chaipum province. Uh, he was a cult leader that he promised his followers that consuming his skin and bodily fluids could cure all ills. So they were eating, they were eating his poop oh. and urine and sweat. And he has now been arrested. He's 75 years old. He was arrested after uh, police came to his compound and found 11 bodies. They're not necessarily saying how these people died, but they obviously have some questions about it and also questions about him uh, asking people to consume the things that came out of and off of him. Oh, man. You know, people. People. What is wrong with people? And we try to figure out how they're going to vote. I mean, that's that's what's really scary. It's like news analysts and then people just behave these ways. You have no idea. Yeah. You just never know. Yeah, you're right. These are voters. Right, here's one. I actually got a chuckle out of this one. All right. So police who arrested Amy Ann Harrington, age 38, after she rear-ended a car in Madeira Beach, Florida, suspected that she was driving under the influence. So they attempted to do field sobriety tests with her. This is according to The Smoking Gun, which is a terrific website. Uh, They asked her to do a one-leg stand and then to walk and turn. But instead, she broke into Irish folk dance moves. Right. And she did, this is according to the arrest report, she stood there and did an Irish, you know, that clogging, whatever like, they call oh, yeah, it. Like, like river dance. Like river dance, dance. Yeah. right, yeah. right. 
right, Lord of the Dance or whatever that guy calls himself. Um, but because she refused to take a breathalyzer, they still charged her with DUI and they took her to the county jail. Where she was clackety clacking away all night. I get power to her. <laughs> I, I wish I had the skill. I wonder how long, how long could you be river dancing before a cop would just tackle you and say, I can't, I can't <laughs> view another second of this. It was everywhere in the 90s. What is his name? It Michael. Was. It went away. Michael something. Yeah, Michael. Right. The Michael, name escapes me now. Michael Ireland, famous river dancer. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I shouldn't I shouldn't disparage the Irish folk uh, arts. It, it is very charming, but no, I, I also like to just imagine it was maybe the cop's Italian and is like, no, absolutely not. And, and we're better Catholics than you. Make her do the Tarantella oh, instead. Yeah, exactly. Well, that was a great note to end on. Yeah, that was a good positive one. We're going to head into the weekend here now on Political Misfits, but I want to say thanks to all our guests. Thanks to our producers and engineers here. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and Ray Valencia and myself, Michelle Witte, thank you for listening. We'll see you on Monday. <laughs>